It is October 13th today. That means a few things. That means you may have noticed it's gotten cold. It means the leaves are changing. And it means if you go to Costco, there's Christmas stuff out, right? In fact, some of the department stores probably already have Christmas music playing. I avoid malls, so I can't tell you firsthand for sure. But I want to think about Christmas for a second, even though it seems a little early. Um, Think back to your childhood memories if you can. I remember when I was a kid, there had to be a rule created in our house that I could not get up before a certain time because I was so excited to go downstairs and see what the presents were that I would like try to wake my parents up at 4.30 in the morning or 5 in the morning. And so I think it was 6 a.m. I was required to sleep until, and, and then, you know, there was so much excitement about going and seeing what was waiting for me under the tree. But as I've matured, there's been this shift, right? I'm less excited about what I'm going to get than I'm excited about seeing the faces of my wife and my kids and the people around me as they open the gifts that I give them. And I find this is true in life, right? As we mature, that sort of shifts. We get less excited about getting stuff and more excited often about the opportunity to give and and to give people joy. And that idea is kind of at the center of what we're going to talk about this morning as we continue in 1 Corinthians. Now, as a reminder, 1 Corinthians, and if you haven't been with us, this is a letter uh, written by a man named Paul to a church in a place called Corinth. Uh, And largely, this, this letter is written for two reasons. First of all, This is a very divided church. Uh, The first seven chapters of this letter really focus on this issue head on. Uh, It's also a church, by the way, that is full of people. Many of them come from a background of worshiping pagan gods uh, in the surrounding culture and and being a part of all the rituals uh, connected to that. And if you've been with us, uh, we've seen a number of places where it appears they've had a really hard time separating themselves from those things as they're following Christ together. And uh, they're arguing over various issues like who's the best leader. Uh, they're failing to adequately care for each other. And so the first seven chapters of this letter are dealing really with this issue of division. And then there's this shift uh, that takes place where we see Paul say, now, in, in regards to these issues you wrote to me about, essentially, uh, and, and what we know, we can surmise, is there's a point where Paul references an earlier letter that he had written to this church which, by the way, he had actually been a part of starting. He had been there for about 18 months at its birth. Uh, So he had written a letter, and then they had written a response back to him. Uh, More than likely, it's not so much questions it is as challenging some of the things that he's written to them. And one of the things that's really important, I don't know if I've said this very clearly, that really from that point that Paul starts responding to their questions, their challenges, the rest of the letter is far more corrective then it is instructive. And what I mean by that is it's far less brand new information about things they haven't experienced than it is correcting the way they're doing things, uh, which is really important, especially this morning as we're in chapter 14, to understand. So again, one of the first issues he deals with, really chapter 8 through 10 is, is focused on this, is their failure to remove themselves from some of the, the pagan rituals that they knew really well and that were a part of their culture. One of the big issues was some of these believers were still going to meals in these pagan temples and it was causing some of the younger believers to kind of trip up and, and not know what's going on and causing confusion and even some harm. And so Paul spends significant time dealing with that. And, and we've been referring back to something he said uh, in the midst of that in chapter 10 a number of times, and I'll put it on the screen. He's writing to them and he says, I have the right to do anything you say. So he's quoting them. So apparently 
in their writing, their letter to, to Paul, maybe they said exactly this, like, we have the right to do anything, which is pretty bold. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. And then here's this big idea in verse 24 of chapter 10. Paul says, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. That seems pretty straightforward and basic, right? We shouldn't be self-seeking, but we should think about other people. We've been taught stuff like this since we were kids, but clearly they still need to hear this because something's off. And their practice. And so this call to seek the good of others rather than just my own good, that idea is woven through the rest of this letter. It's going to be very central to understanding why Paul's saying what he's saying. And so after this first corrective section that's focusing on, on meat and meals and pagan temples, in chapter 11, Paul even has to correct their warped practice of communion. If you'll remember, this was probably in part uh, a result of separation of class. Uh, You had a very class-based system, and so people uh, had different expectations, and you really weren't supposed to even interact with people of a lower class, and it seems like maybe this has seeped into the church. And so even when they're coming to celebrate communion together, they're divided, and it's causing problems, and it's causing hurt. They're thinking of themselves instead of one another, to the point that Paul says they're doing damage in their gatherings. It's more harm than good. And so we come to this section that we've been in the past couple weeks, and it's really all of chapter 12 through 14, where Paul is now responding to either some questions or some challenges that they've raised, uh, specifically regarding spiritual gifts and what happens in their worship gatherings together. Again, throughout this section, it's really helpful to recognize that the vast majority of what Paul's saying here is corrective rather than new information being instructive. It's corrective. Uh, And what we see in the Corinthians is apparently this unbridled expression of the speaking in tongues, which we're going to get into a bit this morning in the worship gatherings. And it seems that they've placed this, this exceeding value upon this practice to the point that it's, it's disruptive and it's harmful. So if you haven't been with us in chapter 12, Paul begins this argument uh, in this somewhat repetitive explanation of the value of diversity in the church, specifically the value of these different spiritual gifts, because they appear to only value one of them. And the value of this idea of the church as a body, if you'll remember, we're all different parts of this one body. And if one part is harmed, we all are harmed. If one part rejoices, we all rejoice. But all of these different pieces working together are essential for the church to be healthy all of these different gifts that we have through the Holy Spirit being expressed. It's for the common good, which we'll see that idea again in a moment. It's central to the passage that we're looking at. And then in chapter 13, uh, we looked at this last week. This is, if you've been to a wedding, you've heard uh, part of this chapter. It's about love. Uh, Chapter 13 actually opens this way. And this is, again, in this middle of this whole long section dealing with some of their issues. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And last week we discussed uh, there's something we often miss in English that they would have caught in their culture, that that phrase for clanging cymbal was something they knew. It was uh, a noise that was a part of the pagan ritual worship uh, that went on in their midst. And so there's this sort of subtle thing going on here, maybe not even subtle, that he's saying what you're doing sounds as bad as uh, what's around you. So Paul puts together this idea of diversity and gifts, and then this this 
basis of necessity uh, that we, we have to do everything in love. And if we do something not in love, it's worthless. That's largely what chapter 13 deals with it, that our motivation, our reason for doing anything, in fact, our actions themselves have to be out of love or they don't have value. And then we get to chapter 14 where these two ideas come together. That in our worship gatherings, their goal is to be to love one another and to build one another up through the expression of these spiritual gifts. In other words, we could say they're to seek the good of others instead of themselves when they're gathered and in how they put to use the things that God's empowered them to do. Now, there's two ways Paul's going to apply this. Uh, In the section we're looking at this morning, he's going to focus on this idea basically of needing to be intelligible in what we're doing, not, not to do things that are hard to understand. And then in the section that follows that we'll look at next week, he's really focused on this need for some sort of order in the midst of the chaos that's marking their gatherings. So let's dive in. We're going to begin in chapter 14. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. First Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to begin in verse 1. And I want us to notice that Paul begins by drawing this connection between love and spiritual gifts. So I'll put this up on the screen. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Begins this way. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Now, he's, that's going to come back in play here in a second. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. Verse 3. But the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their strengthening, encouraging, and support. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies. That's the idea of building up. That's not a word we use a whole lot, but it's, it's the idea of it, 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 it benefits me, uh, edifies themselves. But the one who prophesies edifies the church, builds others up. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. There's, we'll just highlight that word, I guess. So there's some, let's just be honest, there's some interesting ideas in here that maybe we're comfortable with, maybe we're not comfortable with, these ideas of speaking in tongues and, and prophesying. Maybe you have various ideas around those. Uh, we want to jump into that this morning. But he begins with follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy, which, by the way, uh, often in the Old Testament primarily means uh, speaking something predictive, sort of foretelling or, or speaking uh, knowledge given divinely. And then in the New Testament, uh, it's often used of, of essentially having been taught by God, speaking God's will, speaking the words of God, words of encouragement, words of teaching, words of comfort, words of conviction, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are conveying the words of God to other people. So the first thing, we're to follow the way of love and we're to eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit. Now the question arises, why would we want those gifts? Because there's a number of ways we could answer that question and not all of them are helpful. Now, Paul's about to contrast specifically this idea of prophecy and then this other idea of speaking in tongues, emphasizing one is more important because of the value of building other people up. In other words, the primary reason that we should follow the way of love and 
eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit is so that we can build other people up, not just benefit ourselves. Again, it goes back to that idea in chapter 10 of think not only the good of yourselves, but the good of others, right? Now it's expressed even in spiritual terms and the way uh, they behave when they're gathering. Now in verse 2, we get a glimpse of what's going on in the church, which will be contrasted uh, to these values that Paul is conveying. They're speaking in a manner that no one understands, and it isn't helping anyone. So I want to pause for a moment. I want to consider this idea of speaking in tongues, because for many of us, um, it's a foreign or it's a weird or uncomfortable, strange idea. If you grew up in the church, you may have heard various differing doctrines or theologies or ideas around this. Um, I grew up in church, just to be open, thinking that in the New Testament, this was this common practice that everybody experienced, and then something changed, and for some reason, we don't experience that today. By the way, there's a theology around that called cessationist, and then there's Obviously, others who believe we're all supposed to speak in tongues today. Um, I, I think we come to those two conclusions largely because we fail to recognize, again, that this passage is far more corrective that is, than it is instructive. And, and we'll play that out a bit. So speaking in tongues, there are 19 references in the New Testament where this term speaking in tongues comes up. 14 of those 19 references are in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the vast majority of them. There are three other places that we find speaking in tongues, and and three of the references are, in fact, in Acts chapter 2. Maybe you're familiar with uh, the events around this day of Pentecost where these early followers of Jesus in the midst of this massive festival in Jerusalem where all of these foreign people have come from all of these different places are miraculously empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak in such a way that all of these various people say we can understand this message in our own language. And so something miraculous is going on in that situation where these followers of Jesus are able by the Holy Spirit to speak in these different languages in a manner in which people hear about Christ in their own language. Then, the next time we see this is in Acts chapter 10, which is in its own right an interesting story. We have Peter who's been a close follower of Jesus, right? We know a lot about Peter. Peter has this vision, and and he has it more than once, and he's supposed to go and meet with this Cornelius who's in another town and, and speak to him. He's directed by God, in fact, to go to the home of Cornelius, who's a Gentile. Now, Peter is Jewish and admittedly in this passage recognizes Uh, In a sense, he's sort of a a racist. He looks down on people that aren't like him. He looks down on these Gentile people. But yet God's called him uh, to go to this household to speak to these people. And I want us to notice what happens here. This is Acts chapter 10. If you want to turn there, I think we pick up in verse 44. So here's Peter at the home of Cornelius. And it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Now, the ones hearing the message are these Gentile people. Verse 45, the circumcised believers, that means the Jewish uh, crew that came with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. You can hear sort of the discriminatory viewpoint right there, right? Verse 46, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then notice what Peter says. Surely 
No one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. What's interesting about that passage is when Peter says that no one can stand in the way of their being baptized, the inference there is that they planned to, that they wouldn't have been okay with it, that these Gentiles were sort of off limits. And so God intervenes in this miraculous way, and the way that these Jewish followers of Jesus recognize, wow, even Gentiles can follow Jesus, is the Holy Spirit empowers them to speak in tongues, which they recognize because what had happened on Pentecost. That was the big moment at the birth of the church. They had spoken in tongues. So then the other example we find is in Acts 19, if you'd like to turn there. And here we have Paul interacting with uh, some believers in Ephesus. This is Acts chapter 19, verse 1. By the way, if you've been with us through this study, you might remember that this Apollos who's mentioned and Peter and Paul are the three primary leaders that have these factions have grown within the church around which is the best, right? So Apollos is at Corinth, and Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at this other city, Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, which is interesting. So they had part of the story. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? And they say, John's baptism. If you know the backstory, John was the one who was the forerunner before Jesus. And he was calling people out in the wilderness to repent of their sins, talking about this one who would come after him, right? So they've received John's baptism. And Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. And then he says this, he says, or we find this, on hearing this, They do what? They're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then what happens? Paul places his hands on them. The Holy Spirit comes on them and they speak in tongues and they prophesy. And it was a group of 12, by the way. It wasn't a massive group of people. So again, it's rather unique. We have these 12 individuals who have part of the story who are uh, wanting to follow Jesus. They don't yet even understand this idea of being baptized into Jesus. And when that takes place, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's shown through their ability to prophesy and speak in tongues. Which, by the way, in all three of these examples could very well simply mean speaking in other human languages. It just isn't clear. But it's important to recognize that other than these three events in the New Testament, the only other place we see Christians speaking in tongues is in Corinth. It's the only other place. And Paul is clearly in Corinthians corrective in what he's telling them. In other words, he's not telling them to do something new. He's, he's dealing with something they're already practicing. If you'll remember at the beginning of chapter 12, Paul seems to be contrasting how the Holy Spirit does this uh, in regards to some former experiences they had in their pagan worship service where they would uh, have these various utterances that were part of their ecstatic worship of these false gods. Uh, Perhaps, again, that's what Paul's referencing at the beginning of chapter 13 when he talks about being a gong or a clanging cymbal if it's not happening in love. Now, we don't know this, but it's quite possible that speaking in tongues uh, was viewed as a proof that they were the real deal. They were following Jesus. It's possible 
uh, as these people who clearly through the letter have this focus on being people of the spirit, uh, that this is sort of the litmus test. And actually, it also shouldn't be surprising that this is a big deal. In the early church, the moment you look back on is Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost? And they've had Peter, they've had Paul, they've had Apollos in their church. They probably know these stories we read in Acts 10 and Acts 19. And so it's not surprising that this would be a big deal to them, especially if it's part of their formal culture as well. Now, I say all this to suggest this, and you're welcome to disagree with me, but I think this is based on what we just went through. The New Testament doesn't seem to show it as normal common experience that in all the churches, Christians spoke in tongues. And in the case of Corinthians, the manner in which they're practicing this in their worship gatherings is in fact problematic. And Paul's correcting it. The reason I bring that up is I think most of the two predominant theologies that we fall into are built around thinking that Paul's teaching something new in first Corinthians and built around this assumption that all of the early believers spoke in tongues, which there just really isn't support for that idea in the New Testament, I don't believe. So what is Paul intending here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4? And why is he talking about this? So let's go back again. I just want to notice again the first five verses since we've been jumping around. Again, Paul says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. By the way, we get an idea of what prophecy is from this verse. Verse 4, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies or builds up or benefits themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies or builds up or benefits the church. He says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so the church may be edified. Again, Paul is focusing on this value of building one another up. Clearly, these are people eager for God's spirit to be at work in them, which Paul says, that's a good thing. I want you to follow the way of love and be eager, desire these spiritual gifts desire that God's spirit would be at work in us for the purpose of building up other people. In verse 19, uh, Paul's going to be rather forceful and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but he's going to say, I would rather you speak five intelligible words or I would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 in another tongue. Paul says in verse 5, I would rather, I would, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather that you prophesy. So let's recognize, we're going to see this as we go through the whole passage, they're already speaking in tongues. They're already doing this. So when he says, I'd like you all to do this, they're already doing it. He says, but I'd rather have you prophesy. And it's Paul's preference that they'd focus on the idea of prophecy so they could speak the words of God to one another to build one another up. Now let's read on. If we go on to verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? 
Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So he's comparing this to sort of just noise that doesn't have any real direction. Verse 9, so it is with you. So this is what's going on. This is what he's referring to. So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. Verse 12, so it is again with you. Since you're eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Again, in verse 9 and verse 12, both times he says, so it is with you. This is something that's already taking place. They're speaking things that are unintelligible. They can't understand one another. Paul says they're speaking into the air. They're grasping to understand what's being said, and so it isn't building up their church. And so Paul says, since you're eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. That's really what he's getting at in this corrective teaching. Again, it's clear that they're already practicing speaking in tongues. It seems that it was chaotic, and in the way they were practicing it, it was unhelpful in their gatherings. And they were eager to express gifts of the Holy Spirit to see these manifestations, these visible expressions of God working in them. But they weren't doing it for the purpose of building up one another. It seems to be doing it for their own good. Perhaps, you know, the focus was if, if I see this expression happening, then I know the Holy Spirit's really at work in me. And you can see how that would work. It's, it's exciting for us, isn't it, when we see moments where maybe God gives us an opportunity to share the gospel with someone or, or do something, and it's like, wow, God just worked through me. Like, that's a really great uh, experience, isn't it? It's encouraging. So you can see how this would be something they would focus on. But Paul's focus is on building one another up. Build one another up. He continues. Let's look at verse 13. Read down to verse 19 here. For this reason, the one who speaks in tongues uh, should pray that they may interpret what they say. What's the reason? So that people can understand it, right? Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who's now put in the position of an inquirer, say amen to your thanksgiving. In other words, how can the person next to you share in praising God with you if they don't have any idea what you're talking about, since they do not know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified or built up. Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words than to instruct others in 10,000 words in a tongue. By the way, these are really strong words. Again, the focus is build one another up. 
They're eager for God's spirit to be at work in them, which he says is a great thing. But do it for the purpose of building one another up rather than some sort of personal proof or litmus test or looking spiritual. Again, verse 19 is really forceful. And Paul says, I'd rather speak five intelligible words than speak 10,000 in a tongue. And so as I've considered this, the question comes up, why does he spend three chapters dealing primarily with this issue? Because this has really been the focus of what he's talked about since since chapter 12. Again, let's go back to the first three verses because I think it it sort of shows us. Uh, Verse 1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire uh, gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Wow, that jumped all over the place. See if we can do this. There we go. Verse 2, for anyone who speaks in a tongue, I'm going to let you do that back there, all right? Anyone who speaks in a tongue uh, does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. Uh, They utter mysteries of the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their strengthening, encouraging, and support. If you notice the the logic here looking at your Bibles, he says, follow the way of love. Again, remember, without it, we're just... Noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. He says, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. And then verse 3, but the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their strengthening and encouragement. The logic is actually kind of clear here. They're not loving in their current practice. But in the theme Paul's been tracing, thinking only of themselves rather than others, this is expressed not only in the way they're practicing communion, but in their worship gatherings. They're focused on either personal fulfillment or proving their spirituality or something along those lines rather than on serving one another. And I just have to say, as we've been going through this letter, I really wish we could just like teleport back in time and see what's going on in this church because it really is interesting, isn't it? I mean, it really sounds like a wild, dynamic place uh, where probably people are excited and intend the right things, but yet they're walking over the top of each other. And as we go through 1 Corinthians, if we're honest, sometimes, especially in passages like this, it almost seems weird. Uh, It seems strange. It seems outside of our experience. But here's the thing I want us to understand this morning. I don't know that our culture is all that different. I don't know that our practice is all that different. We may not have a chaotic service with a bunch of intelligible noise. But did we come this morning focused on receiving something or on giving something? And and that isn't a guilt trip for anyone. That's just the reality. Our culture in the church, not just North Park, but in the church, do we tend to come Sunday mornings for the purpose of receiving something or for the purpose of giving and serving? We live in a society, you may recognize this, that's, dominated by a consumer mindset. That's why Christmas stuff is already at Costco, right? They want us to buy it. But there's a great difference between existing in a consumer culture versus adopting a consumer worldview and coming to God, coming to church as a consumer. And as I think about the years I've been involved in various churches, you know, most of the disagreements within congregations have to do with what we want, what we want to receive the style of teaching or preaching, the music, the programming. And the reality is we all have preferences towards those things, and probably many of us want to receive slightly different things, right? 
And so they become points of conflict when our focus is on receiving something rather than giving something. You know, I've heard very, very few stories of people leaving a church because they couldn't serve effectively. I hear a lot of stories of people leaving a church because the music is too loud or the message just doesn't speak to them. It's not relevant. They're leaving because they're not receiving what they want. And maybe some of us experience that because that's probably in our culture our expectation of why we gather. It's to receive something. But we do well, all of us, to remind ourselves that as followers of Jesus, our primary motivation, in fact, in gathering is to seek the good of others rather than ourselves and to give of ourselves to God. I want to challenge us that on Sunday mornings as we're maturing in Christ, our expectation as we come needs to be to give, to serve. That's why we're here, rather than to receive. Now, certainly there are moments where our tank is running on empty or we're in a crisis or some of us are very young in our faith or we're still kicking the tires on what it means to follow Jesus. Yeah, come that way. But as we mature as followers of Christ, then the reason we gather isn't actually primary to get something, but rather to be a part of what God's doing and to be giving to one another as God empowers us to be involved in what he's doing. Whether that's Sunday morning, a potluck, a community group, whatever it is, if we're mature in Christ, our expectation, our reasoning, our value should be that we're coming to serve and to give, to serve God and to give ourselves to God and to serve one another and to give ourselves to one another. Often those two look the same. We come with this desire to build one another up rather than to be built up. And one of the crazy, seemingly upside-down realities that's central to following Jesus and we've, many of us have probably experienced this, we know it by experience, is that it is in fact usually when we are giving that we receive things of the most value. It's actually in that process, we just mentioned that, of when we share the gospel, when we see God use us in a way that powerfully impacts someone else, that we receive something from that that is of so much value. As a youth pastor, this was common experience taking students on mission trips. We see this in outreaches. It, that as we give, sometimes in uncomfortable ways or scary ways, so often it's as we give that we find life that we didn't see before. I would argue it's because that's what we're created for. We're living in this life we're created for. If you remember, Jesus said, if you want to find life, you have to lose it. It's the idea of giving it away. Interestingly, a, a lot of the teachings of Jesus we don't find in all four Gospels. This is one of those that we do. In fact, in Matthew, we find it in more than one place. It's central to understanding the way of Jesus. Luke records Jesus uh, in this way, in Luke 9. This is Jesus speaking. I'm going to just read it. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple, and maybe you're familiar with these words, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And then he contrasts it to this other idea. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose 
or forfeit their very selves. In other words, what good is it for me to get everything I want? Because that's not where I'm going to find life. It's actually in giving life away in the way of Jesus that I find life. You know, I find that as we mature in Christ, it's a lot like that reality of Christmas morning, right? As we mature in Christ, we understand more and more that we find life in giving rather than in receiving, rather than what we get from others. In fact, when the first happens, the second usually follows. I think we know this, but I think we fail to recognize that same value drives why we gather on Sunday mornings. We're blessed that we have amazing musicians. We have incredible people that work with our children and provide programming. We have all these wonderful things that, yes, we receive, and I'm thankful for that, but that's not why we're here, primarily. We're here because we're a part of the body of Christ, each of us gifted by God's Spirit in various ways, that when we work with God in harmony with what He's doing through us, we build one another up. And in fact, it's only as we're built up together in love that we can actually live out that unity that Jesus calls us to. I don't think all of us getting what we want on Sunday morning necessarily leads to unity. I think sometimes we believe that's the case in the way we practice, not just North Park, but you know the capital C church. What leads to unity in a church is a group of people all focused on giving and serving, and that's the reason we come together, because we want to see God at work and we want to be in tune with what God's doing. And as we all lean into that together, that's where we find unity. That's where we find this remarkable, uncanny unity that really looks different than what you find in the rest of the world. It's about looking for something different. Now, if you're this morning going, man, I kind of come here to get stuff. That's normal. Unfortunately, that's our culture. But that isn't what we're called to. And if you're here this morning, like, I don't know what I have to give. Eagerly desire it. Eagerly seek it. And I, I would say quite practically, serve in the thing that you see that's right in front of you. And start to focus on listening to God's voice and serving the people around you however you can. And I bet you're going to realize God's gifted you in some way. Uh, Rick, can you bring up that first question for me? I want to just consider a couple questions together coming out of this. First of all, how can I serve and give to this church body? That really is the question, right? That's really the question I want to wake up with on Sunday morning. Or on Wednesdays, I want to be thinking about as I go out to our community group, you know, how can I give and serve? That's what I'm focused on. Encourage you to be praying along those lines. Secondly, um, am I seeking my needs from God directly? Now, this is an interesting question. Because sometimes we come to get something from other people that they're going to fail to be able to give us. Maybe that's recognition. Maybe that's a sense of being wanted. Maybe that's, uh, you know, reputation. Are we seeking life from God directly? Are we coming before the Lord, recognizing that the only place we find life is through Jesus? 
Because there are a lot of other places we can seek it, right? The foundation of why we exist as a church is we believe we do not earn God's love by doing good stuff or by being religious or by having perfect attendance on Sunday morning or whatever it is. We celebrate that God has gifted us his love in Jesus Christ. That Jesus, when he went to the cross, took the penalty of our sin and our brokenness upon himself. And when he was resurrected to new life, Jesus proved that this gift of new life is a reality. That we have full forgiveness in Christ. We are reconciled to God and to one another. And that's the only place we find life. Bring up that next slide for me. Do I eagerly desire God's gifting so I can serve others? I will admit to you there was a lot of years of my life where I would say yes to the first part. But it was so I'd know I'm really a Christian. Right? So, so I know for sure that God actually likes me. Do I eagerly desire God's gifting so I can serve others? That's the heartbeat of Jesus. That's the heartbeat of Jesus. And I hope that as we mature as a group of followers of Jesus, that our expectations will continue to shift, that whenever we gather, whether it's here, whether it's a service project, wherever, that we come with this focus and expectation of how can I give, how can I serve, how can I build the people up around me and partner with God and what he's doing. Bring up that last slide if you would. Again, this is just this repeat of this question. Where am I seeking life? Because it's found in one place. In fact, the, the life that Jesus promises, this new life, he invites us to walk in. Jesus says we're only going to find it if we give it away in his name. That's where we find it. If you want a fuller life, embrace serving one another in the name of Jesus. Embrace giving of yourself to the people around you in the name of Jesus. And watch what happens. Let's pray. Father, would you grow us in maturity in Jesus? Would you empower us to be a part of your work that we could build one another up in love and in unity and in full maturity in Christ? Would you make us a people of remarkable unity, not because we agree, but because we're committed to one another? because of your love for us. Jesus, would you help us in a fuller sense today to find the life you offer and to walk in it, to experience it, to know it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.